This is Altruistic, where we speak with pioneers in the race to zero and unpack the lessons from their experience for you, our community of impact professionals. I'm your host, Seth Hamid, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the sharing economy. You may already be familiar with this space, already be an early adopter, or be entirely new to the territory. We're going to unpack the challenges, identify the opportunities, and determine the potential for sustainable consumerism in our conversation with Nigel Fan. Nigel is the founder of Whirly, a toy sharing platform that is at the forefront of this technology-enabled disruption. Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. When we first met and first discussed Whirly, I think it was about three or four years ago, and I think what was what was always really impressive for me was you were so completely on top of the numbers and on top of all the facts and all the data in your industry to the point where you had a super high level of conviction that this was just the right way to go and the natural progression for this area. My first question is, I'd love to just hear a bit about what Whirly is in your own words to describe and introduce it to our, our listeners. And then I'd love to get your thoughts on why the sharing economy is important for us. <laughs> Thank you very much. In a nutshell, Worthy uh, is a toy uh, subscription where parents can sign up to a plan with us that gets them access to a wide range of toys, like a private library. Parents then get to pick and choose exactly what toys they want to borrow from us uh, and we do everything else, pick it, pick it, pack it, quality control these toys, send it to the parent and their family to enjoy. Uh, families and children can then decide however long or however short they want to keep each, each toy for, so fully flexible model. As so when a kid uh, falls out of love with a toy or outgrows it and needs the next age or skill appropriate toy, parents simply send it back to us and choose something else to borrow. At Worley, we deal with everything behind the scenes, so we will clean, check, sanitize all products before we make it available uh, for the next set of families to enjoy. Now, I think quite intuitively, uh, when I first started, you, know, you pointed out, I spent a long time thinking about the problem space, thinking about the solution for it. Uh, and what became quite apparent and very you know, intuitive to any parent out there or any non-parent is the fact that children outgrow stuff so quickly. And when you look at toys specifically, you know, we did our own research where we asked questions, you know, how long do you think a toy is loved and used at home after purchase before it just becomes like forgotten in the corner? What parents told us is that one in four toys they purchase go unloved within just a single week. When you try to extrapolate that across the millions of households in the UK, across the millions of toy purchases, that is a really staggering number. And then when you layer that along the fact that most of these toys are very difficult to recycle, either because they are made of complex plastic polymers or because they contain electronics for lights and sound, a lot of that gets thrown and eventually ends up into landfill. Now, what gave us a lot of conviction around the sharing economy in particular was then the juxtaposition of the fact that these products are frankly really durable and evergreen. When you look at unloved toys in a family's house, there's frankly nothing wrong with the toy. It's a toy that is fully functioning, it's probably still current, there's another family that would love to play with that toy. There's just no mechanism for it that is easy for a consumer to look at all the stuff that's unloved at home, take it and then find a better home for it. You know, A lot of people will do, especially as we saw the pandemic, they clear out to thrift stores, the, the Marie Kondo in their, their apartments, donating all of this away, which is really fantastic. Uh, but what we are also trying to offer is a more convenient uh, service that for parents that make it, makes it a little bit easier for everyone to do it on an ongoing basis, not something that you do for once every uh, couple of years. 
And so you're looking at that, looking at consumer stories, looking at a lot of bits of data, that was what gave me all the initial conviction that the sharing economy was absolutely the path forward for children's goods, the children's toys, yes, but frankly, to be honest, for so many other categories as well. Super interesting, Nigel. And I guess if I just play some of that back to you, I think that what you're describing highlights two sets of value propositions. One is the consumer facing aspect, which I imagine goes to things like space optimization in your home. Yep. It's giving your kids something new to play with rather than having to go out, out and buy things afresh every time. And that's obviously super innovative, I think, from a, a consumer value proposition perspective. The other aspect is the environmental impact, which of course is mm -hmm. our bread and butter at Altruistic. I wonder what are your thoughts on what makes the ideal set of criteria for a share-friendly category? In your space, yeah. the products are durable, evergreen, as you say, also yeah. difficult to recycle, also, frankly, just as good, probably, in most cases, yeah. after their second or third use. What would you say are the three or four filters that you'd run this through almost? Yeah, sure. I think... Um... The one that we obsess over a lot is our ability, what we describe as our ability to funnel uh, concentrate demand into a narrow set of products and SKUs. And this is ultimately how sharing works in a nutshell, right? You have many people who want the same thing and therefore they can share it around at different time periods. Uh, and so Toys was also really positive for that, of course, because when you think about uh, the kind of big brands, you know, everyone remembers in their childhood probably having a xylophone at some point. And what this really means is that as a business, uh, we're able to have what we describe as a really high utilization of all the products that we own. Something of like 80% of all the products we have actually have at Worthy is always fully utilized with a customer borrowed. Things come back to our warehouse, we clean it, we sterilize it, and then very quickly it's out again being utilized by another customer. And we don't just have a long tail of SKUs that are just sat in the warehouse because you know, there's a very counterintuitive approach where if you have too much skew proliferation and you're not really sharing because each item gets only borrowed once or twice, whereas at Worthy, each item gets borrowed usually about anywhere between five to ten times before we eventually have to try to retire that toy. So I think that's really important. And I think the second dimension that often gets overlooked is this whole notion of uh, that leverage you get with average order value to delivery costs, right? As you think about the sharing economy, obviously on one hand, we're really massively reducing uh, production because we don't have to need to reproduce less to consume the same. Uh, therefore, less shipping and all that associated with the initial part of the supply chain. Uh, but then what can be uh, counterproductive is the last mile and carbon emissions of the swapping that takes place. Most of the sharing is kind of enabled by e-commerce and, and logistics. And, and so for us, it was really important that there was a right balance between that sharing element and the additional trips back and forth between different subscribers. And then balancing that again, easier for us in our category because our category is quite plastic dominant. And so we can always understand that that offset is quite important for landfill waste. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think increasingly there have been questions that have been asked in other categories about whether this is really better if what you're sharing is actually recyclable and not that difficult to produce, not that energy intensive to produce. And thinking about how you can really promote genuine sharing where many people want uh, the same thing and then secondly thinking about that the type of product and whether it kind of more than offsets the any additional carbon carbon emissions from uh, last mile fascinating and, and nigel the fashion industry has quite strongly embraced the sector right it actually finds yeah. interesting Sorry. new additional value drivers to make yeah. this work where you can actually capitalize on trends for specific items you can get influencers involved and really promote their wardrobe for example do you think that there are other categories where the model could be really interesting beyond toys, fashion, and, and, and the obvious ones? 
Yeah, sure. Apparently in B2B heavy machinery, this is obviously people lease heavy machinery a lot already, um, but the notion of sharing being a shorter term alternative to long-term leases, basically anything where you can replace large capex expenditure for short rental periods, right? And a lot of these kind of markets already exist, so there's a bit of a blurred lines. I think when you think about consumer households, the reality is that many of us look around our rooms that we're sitting in right now. When you go on holiday, for example, uh, sometimes people find themselves buying additional bags, you know, maybe spending like 100 quid for a bag for a holiday that they have coming up and no other future plans to use this bag. You know, why not rent that for £10 instead, right? Um, you think about, you know, for example, for me, I go through phases where oh, I love to put together some furniture, do some DIY, and then I buy all of these tools and stuff. Um, then horrendously fail in whatever project I was trying to do right? and then never turn back to the tools again, right? And so these are all things I could borrow as well. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting thought, an open question, but your furniture is taking off in some pockets as well. People are borrowing, if you rent your flat, why not borrow your furniture? Why commit to the flat purchase? I wish I, I did that as a student where it saved me a lot of the whole reselling my furniture at the end of my term type situations. I think generally I see the sharing economy as being able to be applied uh, in a theoretical sense, to anywhere where a consumer, uh, you know, has limited use for an item and probably doesn't need to own it for the entire product's lifespan. I think the B2B space and the heavy machinery angle particularly is interesting, right? Because the value of the item there is also very large. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you maintain it in good order, then the use you yeah. get out of it can be pretty much the same. Even, yeah. even just by the criteria you've listed out, I think that could be a really clear winner. How do you think about resale versus sharing? Because... Yeah. In a few other spaces, you almost see the two platforms competing where the resale angle can in some ways be a little easier to manage the logistics for because you don't necessarily need the intermediary during the cleaning and sanitation and yeah. all of that. Like, what are your views there? I like to think of us as a complementary parts of the same ecosystem and the same mission and agenda, right? Rather than competitors. I do think that we service slightly different use cases and consumer needs. At Worley, we are very customer-oriented and customer-experience-oriented. So one thing that we, and why we invested in our own operations, our own range, and ourselves as a retail service more than anything, is because we wanted to recognize the fact that resale and marketplace platforms have been around for a really long time, and, and take-up of it is limited to some extent. If I give you a very specific example, you know, you can quite easily get baby goods on second marketplaces. But the common barrier you hear from parents is that notion of, do they trust the marketplace seller? Do they trust the condition of the product they're going to receive? It's a little bit too inconvenient if I need to meet someone in the parking lot and make sure there's like a CCTV camera in the corner or whatever to, to, to do this exchange. Or, or, or also just generally that they cannot find the products they want on the resale marketplace. Because in the resale places, you're always just limited by whatever the supply is on the other side of the equation. And, and so when we developed Worley, we really wanted to be complementary to that and tackle those customers that have those kind of concerns, right? Like at Worley, because we buy all our toys and because we curate our own range ourselves, we eliminate that issue of supply. You know, we can cater like any retailer would to what we think the current immediate demand pattern is. When Frozen 2, the film came out, our full range of Frozen 2 merchandise and toys was ready to go. You could borrow it and take a kid to watch the new movie with it. And it's because we ran our own operation. And for a lot of parents, that would actually be really important because you know, resale marketplaces would be a few months behind the kind of new products. And so they want to have something new, yet know that when they return it and when the newness is no longer um, interesting, other families will enjoy it um, a few years on. Look, at the end of the day, I think resale platforms do 
an amazing job. We are actually quite active users of a few platforms ourselves in our, in our household. But I think there's uh, different audiences that we go after. And for us in the ecosystem, for us as a, as a sustainability agenda, you kind of need all participants to kind of ride this wave together and build it up for each other. And, and Nigel, what are the things that you can do from a business perspective that just aren't possible otherwise? Because what you were describing, the differentiating factor of curation, where you're saying that versus a resale platform, you're able to actually curate the product selection. You yeah. could also actually go in a few interesting directions from there, either backwards into your supply chain or starting to shape which products you push out to individual uh, consumers. We don't do any white labeling as of yet, although you know, obviously there are some natural benefits to working with our manufacturers on better design choices. Uh, when you operate a sharing economy, what quickly becomes quite clear is that most retail products are made for e-commerce and retail and they're not made for the sharing economy. And so, you know, that prevents some challenges. Even when you think about just bricks and mortar retail versus e-commerce, what you see in toys, for example, is that a lot of packaging contains try me kind of buttons and whatnot, right? All these products are made to be put on shelves and carries excess packaging, usually described as frustrating packaging. As an e-commerce retailer, you just don't need any of that. But then as a sharing economy, you kind of go one step further. There's other things we would do and they would generate efficiencies, not just from an operational perspective, but actually from an environment perspective where we're just cutting up waste and cutting up stuff that's not important to our user journey. Um, owning our own operations also means that we can be really clever on things like packaging, which people they underappreciate to extend, maybe a little bit more so every time you're e-commerce order comes in a huge box uh, when your product is really tiny. We reuse all our packaging as far as we can because something that's interesting about our share economy is it's not just the products and toys that go back and forth. Customers actually use the same boxes to return um, stuff to us and then we send those boxes out again. And so uh, we're, I think we're one of the rare uh, companies that actually off offers this as a proposition. You get a small credit applied to your account, but if you opt in to use re recycled packaging, the box that arrives at your doorstep will literally look a little bit beaten up. and we're quite proud of it. We're not ashamed of it as a brand because that the fact that the box is beaten up will show you that it's been through maybe two or three trips before. And, and I think it's, you know, things like that. Yes, it's recyclable. Sure, it's cardboard. But still, we can go that one step further because we own those operations. That makes it quite magical. What's really interesting about that is your ability to, to turn a negative, which is the fact that the box is scuffed and beaten yes. up, actually into a brand credential, right? This is the evidence that it's more sustainable. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and that also is something we take to heart when we think about the quality control of our toys. What you find is that you know, parents understand that the whole idea of what they're signing up to is sharing products and the secondhand nature or the pre-loved nature of these products. And so when something arrives at the door and you know, obviously new customers always kind of check, they want to kind of verify the product quality of themselves. They will sometimes notice scratches, maybe a crayon mark and whatnot. All of these are signs that the product has been well used, well loved. Uh, and what they will also notice is that these are all aesthetic, superficial things, right? And when you think about the functionality of the product, the enjoyment the kids would get out of it, you know, like the box, it looks beaten up, but it serves its purpose. Your, your, your parcels arrive there safe and sound. Uh, and, and then that gives you quite, I think, a, a deep appreciation for actually, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we don't have such a high bar for absolutely everything and we recognize that it's fine for it to be a bit beaten up because someone else has used it before, uh, that is actually a much better way for us to consume as a society. And I think that's really quite... A powerful thing about the worldly brand experience. I think there's also something about as we gravitate towards products as a part of our identity, then recognizing that actually the product is unique if it's been used. Personally yes. speaking, for example, whenever I'm going book shopping, I actually always find myself drawn to the books that are a bit scuffed 
uh, or beaten up. And I actually always prefer on Amazon to try and find a used option because that product has its own pedigree, basically, its own history It's got its own and unique character. footprint. Yeah, exactly. Um, was a subscriber that messaged us on Instagram because we had just posted a story about a young kid playing with, I think it was a, a baby walker a stroller. Uh, and then what she said was that she absolutely loved it every time she saw on our Instagram or on our grid or our socials a kid playing with a toy that they've borrowed for their own kid before. Because it gets that connotation like maybe this is exactly the same toy, like exactly something that was in my household three or four weeks ago that now is being loved and enjoyed by another family and another child and that kid is now so happy with it. As you see the story and the history of the product, but also that bonding of that community and, and, and seeing that, oh, we're all in this together. I mean, this is literally stuff we're sharing as a community. And that's really powerful, I think. I think that is really powerful. It's kind of like a, a small part of yourself that you're throwing out there to be Yes. appreciated <laughs> elsewhere. I guess also just thinking about the model and kind of how it scales across communities. Do you think that this is inherently a local model where, let's say, you know, Worley in the UK will enable sharing across the UK, but then actually making that work across the UK and, and France or the UK and India is almost impossible? How do you navigate Yeah. that? Look, I think what's really a fundamental part of our thesis is using the way Worley is using technology and operations to break down barriers. But the, uh, sharing is a typically localized activity. Sharing between family members, siblings, sharing between your local immediate community or um, your, your workplace or extended family. And, and the barriers always persist when maybe your local community that you're very close to is not very big. Maybe your kids have very different preferences and that's a challenge when you have such a small community. At the heart of what we do is using technology operations so that these barriers don't exist. And the family that today lives in, let's say Aberdeen, can share with a family that uses Worthy in Bristol in a very frictionless way. It doesn't matter that you guys are you know, 300 miles apart or whatever the distance is, sharing my sorry, lack of geographic knowledge here. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter. Uh, if no matter what interest your kid has or you as a family have, we will find another subscriber that has those interests as well, uh, whether they live down the road or whether they live on the other side of the country. And we can facilitate the sharing quite well. And that's really powerful. I don't think that the in the, barrier, the borders of a country should stop that, basically, to put it that way, right? There's no absolute reason why the kind of barriers of a country's borders is a little bit artificial to that sense of like sharing should just be sharing no matter how far you are. I think thinking internationally also opens up really interesting use cases, right? Because I, I mentioned holidays earlier and something I think about is a day where, say, I don't know, there's Worley in Spain. Could we have a subscriber from the UK traveling to Spain, get a box of toys or whatever they need for the trip for their family, deliver it to uh, their residence or their hotel, use it for their week's holiday or what have you. And then it just gets shipped back to the local facility there and they don't have to put it on a plane. They don't have to travel with it. It comes back to this notion as product as a service, right? You don't own the product. You're just paying much more flexibly as it went to have a much more convenient experience about how do you access that product and how do you utilize it. You're paying for user rights, basically, right? That's For right. a defined period in time. Yeah. One of the things that also potentially enables the sharing across borders is the lifetime of the product. And you're in a space where the lifetime of the product, I presume, is can be quite long, which means you can actually move things. Do you have any That's right. any like idea of what the lifetime is? How long does a toy live and how long does it live with Whirly? <laughs> we stock over a thousand different toys so it, it, it wildly varies but um, what we really like and this is where we invest most, most of our range into is what we describe as toys that are both evergreen and virtually indestructible um, 
Maybe I, I, I alluded to things like xylophones earlier, but there's a set of toys that have not changed in design, function. You know, I played with it as a kid. Today's kids play with it. In 30 years' time, the kids will still play with the toy in largely the same format. Maybe minor updates, it looks a slightly different colour or what have you. That stuff is great. Uh, we quite like licenses that have very long staying power uh, as well. So I talked about Frozen earlier. You know, these licenses and these kind of brands would be popular for years to come. Many toys are also made to be super durable. Like um, this is an industry where they know kids can be a bit rough with the way they enjoy things. And so if you think about like a dollar action figure, this is probably the one upside about some the products made of plastic, right? They are very, very durable. When, when we look at those toys, we think those toys will last us easily five years plus, frankly, and maybe five to 10 years and a range like that. So this is again, you know, coming back to one of your earlier questions about what makes a good product category for sharing is that notion that this product genuinely has such a long lifespan. It's a product that can last five years, but for any individual household, they probably don't want it more than two to three months. So you do that mess in your head of like, therefore, if you are really efficient in cycling it through to the rest of other families, how much more can you extend the lifespan of the product? And therefore, how much material waste can you then reduce? And super intuitive is the fact that, you know, 10 families that have separately bought the same product now just share one. And that's a massive step change the direction that product merchandising and i'm kind of thinking of disney's ability to spin multiple lifespans That's out right. of storylines means that you get a new lease on life mm. for the product potentially look like if, my... I, if i say quite candidly here right what we do see in industry and it's very commonplace is for the big movie franchises the parents listening here might notice that there's cosmetic changes that happens to characters in every installment of a new movie right and this is quite frankly done so that you need the latest version of the toy. They look slightly differently. The content producers make a lot of money from their merchandising. The famous example here is Cars, which is Disney Pixar film. At a box office, it was a moderate-ish success. But from a merchandising perspective, I think they sold like 10 billion plus of merchandise just related to the Disney Cars franchise alone, right? And so this is, these are kind of staggering amounts. And part and parcel of it is the notion of like that kind of changing the appearances, slight updates to the model so that you as a family need the latest version, not the version of two years ago. Look, in reality, the kids don't really know and they don't really care. When we ran out of Frozen 2 dolls in our range, we still had Frozen 1 dolls and no one particularly minds that Anna or Elsa has a slightly different look to what they, they still know as Anna or Elsa. And this also kind of helps us with kind of extending that life stage and being a bit more mature of how we think about product range as well, um, just so that we don't find these products will get quickly you know, made obsolete just by new content coming out. Hearing you speak, my heart goes out to my Optimus Prime, which has been with me for 30 <laughs> years. There you go. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and, and you know, to be honest, like looking at the newer installments of the franchise, honestly, yeah. he looks just as good to me. <laughs> but I think it's, it's super interesting also just to learn about the, the business model of the merchandise side. I guess from an environmental perspective, what does a whirly toy look like versus a toy that I might buy in a store on the high street? Do you, do you have yeah. any, any idea or numbers? So, um, look, what's really popular with us and Part of it is a reflection of the kind of toys we select as well. But we quite like wooden toys, um, frankly, especially where the wood is FSC certified, much better for the environment. You know, I think it's a must and a requirement for us in the sustainability space to think about the win-wins. You know, I think it's frankly difficult to come and have a new way of doing things, a new model, and then ask customers to pay more or, or sacrifice a, a way of life. Uh, and so for us, we pride ourselves on the fact that 
we provide customer win-wins. And in particular, what it means is, for example, when you think about the product in our range, the natural trade-off in a consumer's mindset when they're buying toys, um, it's a little bit like this. It's, there's a plastic version of a toy that's 12 pounds, and then there's a wooded version of a toy that's actually much more sustainable. It's much better from an aesthetic point of view, but it's like 25 pounds, right? And that's a very difficult trade-off to make when you're purchasing because these things add up with finance of spending more. You actually end up saving money when you borrow a wooden toy from us than buying a plastic toy in the high street. So a worldly toy tends to be usually a little bit unfiltered, I would say, from a parent's point of view in terms of these are stuff that they want and therefore they like wooden toys, they like some of these things that maybe they, they, they get for themselves a little bit bigger purchases that they would otherwise regret buying or, or have kind of second thoughts and hesitations about buying off the high street. We index a little bit more towards the younger age groups as well. So zero to 18 months and 18 to kind of as a baby and toddler, effectively up to kind of three or four or five years old, largely as a reflection of uh, one of our missions as well, which is actually thinking about child development and how important child development is in those early years and the wide variety of toys and facilitating all of that. Um, we like toys that share common values to us as a team as an organization. One of the um, examples I always share, because it really genuinely is my favorite, but we have a toy set in our range called uh, the Wonky Fruits and Vegetables set. And this is a wooden toy. It's really lovely. You've got a few fruits and vegetables, a wooden knife, it's Velcro, your kid can you know, fake learn to cut a vegetable. But there's something slightly misshapen by each vegetable in it. Maybe the pear's a bit bruised, or the banana's a bit, you know, it curves at an angle that you don't really expect, or something like that, right? Uh, and what the subscribers really like it is about it is that it teaches kids, it helps you have that conversation with children around your food not needing to be perfect. You know, what is wrong with something that looks like you bruised? And we all know that obviously food waste is a big issue of our time. And particularly a lot of it is driven by the fact that supermarkets just don't even let these kind of wonky fruits and vegetables go on the shelves because no one picks it, right? And so th these are toys that we really like. It has ticks all the boxes for us of that. It's a price point where we can give good access on our, on our kind of borrowing service. It's eco-friendly in the way it's constructed because it's wood. Uh, it's kind of targets, kind of key development skill, and it's quite value-based as well. So that is really at the heart of what we like to see on Worley. I love that. And I think particularly what I love about that is it's on brand as well, right? It's sustainability right. built into yeah. the brand and built into the value proposition. That's right. How do you communicate this to customers who might otherwise be averse to buying a secondhand product? And I remember in your earliest days, yeah. you would often tell me that one of the big challenges that customers come with is, will it be sanitary or clean or, or how does it compare you know, versus that? Yeah, I was just chatting to my team about this last week. And what was really, really positive and mind-blowing to an extent is that in the last few months, we've not had any questions like this. If you look at the history of Worthy over the last three or four years, at the smallest stage when we were just starting up, new brand, no one's heard of us, we did get a few more questions around that nature of like, you know, how do you clean products and how do you do that? You know, obviously, we take pride in the quality and so we do all that properly and we're very happy to always explain to any customer who, who, who asks us this question on live chat. But when COVID came, our QA and QC processes became quite a really big strength of our business. I think we all remember uh, it feels like a long time ago now, but not too long ago, when everyone's trying to figure out what does this mean for any shops that want to stay open? What does it mean for social distancing? Everyone's trying to wipe everything down in between each person touching it, right? But for us at Worthy, we you know, made a few things a bit more rigorous. We kind of like review our processes. No fundamental changes because we have always operated under the assumption that everything we, that comes into Worthy needs to have a thorough cleaning, inspection, sanitization before it becomes available again. 
have at least the capabilities where we knew how to do everything. We didn't have to like reinvent our operation to deal in the COVID world. And then subsequently, I think it also validated the importance for having our own operation to be able to control all of that. The pandemic did see us grow quite sharply as parents tried to um, educate children while schools were closed. And, and then since then, I think mindsets have shifted, right? If we can do what we did without any issue in the midst of the first and second waves of the pandemic, you know, I think uh, we'll be fine from here on out in, in, in a nutshell because we've survived the highest bar of that kind of check of like the quality of our products and the cleanliness of all our toys. For sure. Uh, Nigel, just before this conversation, I was speaking with the chief sustainability officer at a Swiss food company, and she was telling me that the last year has been challenging for them, not so much on the top line, which has actually been really good, but more on the supply chain where they've seen some serious disruption as a result of global global challenges. And I guess that for you guys, actually, that's less of a problem, right? Because a lot of your inventory is rotating customer to customer. Like what has COVID meant for you guys on the overall business and the supply chain and the other fundamentals? You're quite right. We, um, I think we still experience some um, challenges with our suppliers and manufacturers, of course, especially the run up to Christmas where everyone's just making sure we have adequate supply for their customers. We navigated that well, though. Uh, but as you point out, a part of it is also the fact that we just have so much product going through the circular economy. It's really a circular business. New product is only required because our uh, subscriber base is growing very quickly. And so you just need more uh, products in circulation. It's kind of how we call it, almost akin to like money supply, right? We could think about product supply across the injecting new product into the, the circulation as to when our customer growth passes certain levels. Generally, look, I think we'll be a little surprised, but the last 12 months or the last 18 months under the pandemic have been quite challenging for us from a business operations team point of view, trying to navigate all the changing, the general uncertainty, right? The changing regulations and everything else with it. I think in particular, we are quite mindful of also doing the right thing for our employees and our staff. Uh, and so, you know, want to make sure that we keep all of them safe as well. Um, and then that comes with it, the usual challenges of ensuring staff can all fully self-isolate if they need to, dealing with, as a business, we chose to deliberately invest ahead of the problem, basically. So over Christmas, I think we carried something like 20 to 30% extra capacity. This is what we actually needed. And that was very much myself and my board really wanting to make sure, that, look, we don't want to find ourselves in a position where isolations and supply chain, I think, causes us to not be able to satisfy customer demand and rather invest a bit more money now, um, do the right thing, make sure we have absolutely no pressure from the management team down to anyone on the staff team about uh, how long they are away from work for if they were to have to self-isolate, right? And I think that's really important. I, I do recognize it's a bit easier for us to do these kind of things because we are fast-growing business. And so this extra 30% capacity will be eaten up by our growth <laughs> over the next couple of months. And you know, when you're obviously a big retailer, a very steady state business, it's a little bit more difficult to just say, yeah, let's have 20% extra capacity just in case. Nigel, this has been super interesting. I'm kind of moving on to my last question, which is in a previous life, you were a strategy consultant advising some of the largest consumer goods companies in the in the in the country and in the world amongst others and my question is if you were to go back into that world mm -hmm. and start giving advice to some of your old clients what would you tell them knowing what you know now it's a very good question i don't think you'd be anything new or stuff that your know, management consultants have not tried to tell their clients before but i do think there's a general sense of 
lack of appreciation for the oncoming disruption is probably what the way I'll kind of describe it. And the whole challenge around big corporates trying to be agile when really they should be thinking about, you know, doing things agile in completely different teams because the whole way of working is just so completely different. Big companies will always be mired down by bureaucracy or just difficult to pivot operations. Uh, and there's always that easy tendency to say, this is a nascent new startup. They're not going to go anywhere. But things can go very somewhere quite quickly and to a point where you don't have time to react. Uh, and so I think my, my sense for the corporates would be uh, to recognize where you really need to invest in completely new modes. And that's kind of like, how do you do things outside the current confines, set up whole new teams, new process, react a little bit more quickly to what's happening around you in the competitive space. My second piece of advice, if I'm allowed to have two, is that I fundamentally believe that we're going to enter an era where consumers start getting a lot more savvy and cynical around greenwashing and CSR policies. Not to name names, but obviously CSR can be seen very much as a PR exercise, more so than genuinely um, CSR ESG initiatives. There's a little bit of a grace period now where people are figuring out, but I think more is being done. You know, you guys are doing some of it as well to really promote transparency in this space. I think consumers will demand more transparency over the, the next couple of years. So if there's something that corporates really need to sort out for themselves, uh, brands need to sort out for themselves the next five years, is to really walk to walk, not just talk to talk. It's really important and, and sets their brands apart from the other brands that say the same things, but really quite apparently don't kind of um, reflect that in what they actually do. I couldn't agree more, Nigel. I think both of your points, the first around being agile and responsive enough to both see the trends coming, recognize that they're coming, recognize how fast they're moving, and also maintain the operational flexibility to actually respond and often spin up new businesses or transition businesses in short spaces of time. And the second is to be mindful that consumers are going to start to see through uh, a lot of the claims out there. What I really love about your product and just the aspects that you've described is it's really actually product-led transparency. Yep. Like in the product That's itself, right. if you see someone posting on Instagram the use of the toy that you were using last month, if yep. you order a toy and you receive it in a battered box that's clearly been reused, this is actually the real evidence that's very hard to greenwash. I'm a sole founder at Worthy and when I reflect on it, I think that has helped me quite a lot because there's uh, what I often describe to my team, my investors, my board, is the need for that coherence of everything we do and the authenticity of everything we do, a level of consistency that really shouts like, this is a brand, this is, you know, it's not me, but it's kind of feels like a singular person. It's like super consistent in everything we do. And that's really what's lacking, I think, in the corporate space, right? Because obviously, naturally, you've got your CEO, then you've got your CSR officer that does their own thing, and then they're not really aligned and then that comes across because then you have got ops that does nothing marketing does another thing etc and so that level of bureaucracy in the corporate can then just mean it's super fragmented the decision making and then when you're an end consumer and you're looking at the whole picture of you know custom proposition customer experience or whatever it becomes super clear like you say you're this but you know when i talk to a customer service rep they don't really <laughs> it doesn't feel like you bleed it right and, and that's um Easy yeah, design. I really hear you on that, Nigel. And I think that some of the brands that are now coming across as the most iconic in the sustainability space are the ones that have a, a super cohesive mission right. that actually yeah. filters through all through the brand and every yeah. expression of the brand. 
you know, and I immediately think about companies like Patagonia, Lush Cosmetics, these ones, where it's just so front and center of how they operate and how they do business, whether it's how they think about data privacy and data ethics, or the product or the supply chain or the revenue or the advertising, all of those aspects. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Nigel, thank you so much. This has been a thrilling conversation. I think what I take away as the, the main the main features of this is one, there's actually a business model shift, right? You're actually not just you're not just providing a product, you're providing a service, you're building a platform. You're ultimately yeah. creating a recurring engine that can can move product from A to B and back to A and actually have yeah. that as an acceleration on, on a on a macro trend, which is do consumers want to have more personality reflected in their products? Do they want to have a lower environmental footprint? Do they want to get better value? And do they ultimately want to get better products and services ultimately, right? In what you're describing, for example, on the wooden toy versus the plastic uh, situation. The other aspect is that what we're seeing is not just a local phenomenon. This is this is global and this actually doesn't need to be contained within the UK or within a particular economy where you're doing business. This can actually cross borders, which I think is a really nice stake of globalization, frankly. The third piece is really just the resiliency of the business model. And again, I think about the fact that you're less susceptible to supply chain challenges. You have a little more visibility on where business is going. You have a deeper connection with your customers that ultimately creates a more durable business. So you know, super exciting to get some of these lessons from you and really fascinating, as always, to hear about Worley's mission really to change one major segment, right, that's in, in everyone's homes and as part, a part of everyone's childhoods. So thank you so much for making time for us. Enjoyed this conversation. And on behalf of all of our listeners, customers and supporters, uh, I wish you fantastic next steps on the Worley journey. Thank you. It was wonderful to speak. Perfect. Take care. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's episode of This is Altruistic. Now for some shameless self-promotion. Altruistic provides global enterprises with the technology infrastructure needed to measure, manage, and abate their sustainability impact. Please get in touch if you want to find out how Altruistic can help your business to profitably improve your impact on the world. You can reach us on hello at altruistic.com. The notes from this episode are available in the show notes below, and you can find more episodes of the This Is Altruistic podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you.